Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Angela Polly Hudson, author of a new book called Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians. And uh, she's recipient of the 2016 Evans Biography Award, awarded by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Uh, here's just uh, another paragraph in this fascinating history. In the mid-1840s, Warner McCrary, McCary, an ex-slave from Mississippi, claimed a new identity for himself, traveling around the nation as a Choctaw performer, Oka Tubby. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Mm-hmm. He soon married Lucy Stanton, a divorced white Mormon woman from New York, who likewise claimed to be an Indian and used the name... La Seal. Uh, together, they embarked on an astounding, sometimes scandalous journey across the United States and Canada, performing as an American Indians for sectarian worshippers, theater audiences, patent medicine seekers. Along the way, they used widespread notions of Indianness to disguise their backgrounds, justify their marriage, and make a living. In doing so, they reflected and shaped popular ideas about what it meant to be an American Indian in the mid-19th century. Angela Poli Hudson is Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M University, and uh, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Tom. This is a fascinating history. It gets us into uh, so many issues of uh, 19th century history. Um, first question, how, how did you find, how did you stumble across this history? Well, I first met Okatubby, if you will, um, when I was studying African-American autobiography as a graduate student a lifetime ago when I thought I was going to be a literary scholar. And many African-American um, literary scholars are familiar with Okatubby's autobiography. It's one of several that is taught uh, in the context of fugitive slave autobiographies. And I was fascinated by this former slave who claimed a Choctaw ancestry for himself. I went off to graduate school to, to do the doctorate and worked on something else, sort of shelved my interest in Okatubby, always hoping I could return to it. And when I did, I thought I was going to write a book about black and white Southerners who claim Indian ancestry, real or imagined, and why they did so, how they've done so, how they performed it. And I thought that he would be one case study in that book, one chapter. But while I was working on the research for for that, what I believe to be one chapter, I got an interesting email from someone I had never met before who had come up with my name through a Google search on uh, Warner McCary, which was one of Okatubby's names, actually his birth name. And this fellow wrote to me and said, do you have any thoughts about uh, William McCary, Warner McCary's Mormon period? And I said, come again? I, I know nothing about this. At that point, the story began to get uh, much more complex, and I realized that there was, there was a book here. Many more characters than I had um, previously imagined, many more issues, uh, many more perspectives on 19th century history. Could I have you read uh, the beginning of the prologue here? Sets up a dramatic sure. period in, in Okatabi's uh, life. Sure, of course. So it begins with a quote from the Buffalo Courier from 1851. There is nothing so certain to succeed as imposture if boldly managed. In 1852, when Sarah Marlett pressed charges in Toronto against her Indian husband for bigamy, the news became a tabloid sensation, reaching across the Canadian border to Buffalo and Brooklyn, throughout the Great Lakes region and as far away as Kentucky. Marlet was a white woman from New York, and she had met her ill-fated beau on a canal boat. After a speedy courtship, they were married next to the roaring cataract of Niagara Falls. But Marlet soon learned that her new husband, known to audiences across the region as the virtuosic Choctaw flutist Okatubby, already had an Indian wife and family. Even more shocking, however, was the discovery that Marlet's tawny lover might be an imposter. 
papers began to spread the news that the popular performer was actually a Negro barber who had managed to humbug his way across the United States, performing his Indian show for unsuspecting audiences from Missouri to New Hampshire. Like other Penny Press celebrities whose salacious stories kept antebellum newspaper readers titillated and horrified, the tale of Okatubby's charade made great copy. Sarah Marlett was depicted as a romantic fool, while Tubby's Indian wife, La Seal, was regarded as a poor, deluded squaw. The truth of it all was far more complicated. Uh, a lot more complicated, right? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and so La Seal was seen as a sympathetic character. People didn't know she was a, she was a white Mormon girl. That's exactly right. One of the fascinating um, sort of phenomena that I ex- explore in the book is there were always doubts about Okatubby's claims to Indianness from from nearly the very beginning. And towards the end of his career, he is really sort of unmasked by a series of newspaper stories where he's exposed. But at no point in time uh, during that era was anyone looking into La Seal's background. Not only did they not question her, her Indian claims, she, she claimed to be Mohawk in Delaware. So then not only were they questioning not questioning her indigenous identity that she put forth, but they had no knowledge at all that she had a past within the Mormon church. And in fact, I didn't know that, and neither did other scholars working from the perspective of African-American history and, and literature or American Indian history and literature. Uh, so that was something that was both a revelation to me um, and really opened this story up in, in directions that I could never have predicted. Hmm. Now, they they get married in 1846, That's I, I think. So let's back up and, and do a little brief uh, background on fir- first with uh, Warner McCary, who became Okatubby. Yes. Um, uh, born in Natchez, Mississippi. His siblings were freed, but he was not. That must have been a chip on his shoulder, or, or I'm not sure what what his attitude would have been. Yes, this is one of the things that I really like to pause with when I when I talk to folks about his background, because at age three, he was born into slavery in about 1810, and at age three, his owner passes away. And in his last will and testament, he frees his other slaves, and he uh, requires that Warner remain a slave for his life. And the um, proceeds from his labor were to benefit the freed slaves who were, in fact, Warner McCary's own uh, free black now, half-siblings. So he becomes, at age three, he becomes the property of his own free black half-brother. Um, so that alone sort of opens up a whole bunch of questions about what do we really know about the nature of slavery in the, in the lower Mississippi Valley? What do we really know about um, the life of uh, free blacks in that region, in that era? Um, so, yes, I mean, I think chip on a shoulder, maybe putting it mildly, you know, he, he apparently lived a pretty traumatic childhood. And one of the things, one of the arguments I put forward in the book is that this may help us understand why, when he was able to, he began to imagine an alternative backstory for himself. Hmm. He also discovers a talent for performing. Absolutely. Right? What, what sorts of things would he do? So he starts out as a street performer um, doing sort of mimicry. He mimics the sounds of birds, cats, dogs. You can sort of imagine this this um, scrappy kid on the street corner in Natchez, you know, very much an urban childhood. He had um, performing for a few coins here and there. And um, he later takes up the fife and the flute. Uh, he never performs uh, what you would imagine to be Indian music. This is a question I'm often asked when you find out people find out that he became a, a talented flute player. But he always played things like marches, 
you know, things that you would expect to hear during a militia parade. He played the Marseillaise, things like that. So he starts out with those that sort of ventriloquism and mimicry and then moves on to, to playing instruments. And the one thing that you see again and again throughout his life, the one thing people agree on about him was that he was an immensely talented musician. Hmm. Why would he... What are the reasons that, that he would take an Indian identity? Well, that's one of the that's one of the big questions, right? And that's one of the ones I grappled with the most in researching and and trying to write the book. I think, um, as I as I said before, I think in part he may have been searching for a different uh, story for himself, a sort of different origin story, if you will, because his his the real story of his childhood and his origins, so far as we know it, was so painful. I think also once he is manumitted, he's freed by his half-brother at, at about age 33. And that's when he takes off and becomes a sort of itinerant musician traveling around uh, up and down the Mississippi Valley and the Missouri and Ohio rivers. I think he also finds that this is a time when an Indian performer could sell tickets. There was a certain desire among audiences to to go and see an Indian on stage. Um, this is at the same time or just after Indian removal has happened. So there's this kind of inverse relationship to as Native people are pushed further away in, in reality, the uh, the sort of imaginings of them, performances of Indianness become more attractive to audiences. Mm. And so I think it was a way for him to, um, to make a better living, to be a, a more attractive um, performer on the stage. Let's get a little backstory of uh, uh, Lucy Stanton, Lucille Stanton, who became La Seal. Um, she, her family, I think, converts to Mormonism in Kirtland, Ohio, which is fairly early in the church's history. That's correct. Her family converts in 1830. So they're one of the first groups um, when the first missionaries come from New York to Kirtland. Um, her father, Daniel, and her mother, Clorinda, are among the very first converts, and she and her sisters as well. Um, they are... They actually sort of become notable, not only for being among the first converts, but she and her sisters are known for, um, as one as one contemporary put it, getting the power. So they would engage in ecstatic expressions of the faith. And this was something that I think was in part um, indicative of the influence of Methodism, of the sort of uh, expressive physical expression of, of Methodism that was very popular at the time. And it gets grafted onto this enthusiasm about the, the early Mormon church. They get swept up then in the westward migration of, of many Mormons. They go to Missouri and uh, then experience the persecution and violence of the, the Mormon War in 1838. And they're with the more or less the body of Mormons who then go back across the Mississippi River and settle um, in Illinois after mm -hmm. that. So uh, you write in the book for Lucy Stanton, uh, who became La Seal. Um, this idea of Indianness was attractive to her. In fact, it was part of her, the way she felt she identified as Mormon. Yes, and this was this was a sort of a, a, an analysis that I came to quite late. Uh, in part because I came to understanding Mormon history quite late uh, in the, in the development of this project, but she seemed to have this affinity for American Indians that was both rooted in the kind of directive within church theology to um, to missionize, right, to convert the Lamanites and to be a tool for their salvation. So that I think this is very much rooted in her understanding of what it meant to be Mormon. At the same time, she is a woman of her world. And in that time, there is a lot of popular fiction that romanticizes American Indians in particular ways. 
And I don't think she or other Mormons were immune to that. You know, we have to remember that they're they're not just Mormons. They're also antebellum Americans, right? They're also reading Cooper's novels and and keeping up with the stories of Indian removal and that sort of thing in the papers. And so I think both of those things kind of combine to to make her believe. And she even says in writing later on in life, I I had a vision. I believe I was specially marked to do good for the red people. Mm-hmm. So this was something I think that was deeply felt for her, at least at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, so by the time she meets um, Warner McCary, who by this time is Okatubby, I guess, uh, uh, she's a divorced mother of three? Yes. So she is. Um, she initially marries Oliver Harmon Bassett. Um, they're both in part of the church. They have three children together. And then, as best I can tell, he becomes disillusioned with uh, the LDS religion and wants to leave the church and wants to go back to Ohio, where he was from, and take the children with him. And I believe this is probably the reason that their marriage fell apart. Um, And so she ends up living with, uh, or living more or less with her parents and and her three children, and and he sort of disappears from the scene. And that's the situation that she's in. They're living in Quincy, Illinois, just downriver from Nauvoo, when um, William McCary turns up. So at that stage, he's no longer going by Warner McCary, his birth name, but he's not quite consistently using the sort of Choctaw-derived name of Chubby or Tubby, which which become important later. And so in the Mormon historiography and in the archival records, he's mostly referred to as William McCary at that mm-hmm. time. Why is he here? Is, is he performing, I guess, at least later? They together would perform for Mormon congregations uh, mm-hmm. among other audiences. Is that what he's doing? I think so. I think he's making his way up and down the Mississippi River. He's he's um, traveling on steamboats. And, you know, if you sort of try to map out where he's going during the 1840s, everything is pretty much along the river routes, uh, the Mississippi River, a little bit along the Missouri, and then across over the on the Ohio. So I think he's following the steamboat routes. Um, and performing both on the rivers, but also at various sort of saloons and taverns along the way. And I think that's what brings him upriver t- um, to Quincy, and, and that's where they meet. Hmm. What do you think got them t- together? I guess an, an, an attraction and a, a shared vision for what they can do, but there are complications, right? He's a black man. Yes. She's a white woman. Yes. That's illegal, I would imagine, in Yes. Everywhere. Well, it's it's specifically illegal in Illinois at that time. At the time that they meet and get married, that was punishable um, by imprisonment and, and a fine and whipping as well. This is, to me, one of the great kind of abiding mysteries of the book, one that even I, as the historian researching it, couldn't quite ever really resolve. And that's because you can never really get into the interior life of the subjects that you're researching. Mm-hmm. How do they really feel, right? Um I don't know if she accepted him as an Indian when they met. I think she probably did. There's evidence that her family did and that other members of the Mormon church did and that that was the reason that they baptized him and agreed for them to be sealed in Nauvoo. I don't feel very confident that if everyone was sure he was African-American that they would have gone through with that, Mm -hmm. Um, not only because it was illegal but because of the sort of abiding prejudices in general against, against blacks at that time. Um, but to what degree did, did his Indian – was his Indianness the thing that attracted her to him? I think even if she didn't believe that he was 100 percent Indian, I think his ability to be persuasive um, and to perform Indianness had to have been something that drew her to him, given her affinity for her sort of fascination with Native people in her earlier – you know, in her youth, mm-hmm. in her teenage years. 
But one of the questions that I never could really resolve in in the book is is um, what were they like in private? You know, did she ever know his story of you know his origins in Natchez? Um, and and if so, did she accept it? Was this really love, or was this a match for more pragmatic purposes? Um, those are the kinds of questions that, no matter how hard we research, you can never really answer with any um, certainty. Mm. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, much more. Um, and and that phrase, performing Indianness, that's important. We'll talk about that and more. We're talking with Angela Polly Hudson. She is associate professor of history at Texas A&M University. And her book, um, Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians, is a recipient of the 2016 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. More following this break. Did you know that libraries in Cache Valley are being transitioned into civic spaces of the future? Researchers have received a grant from the Institute of Museum and Library Services to work with libraries in northern Utah and the students they serve. They will involve students and their families in maker activities, which combine arts and crafts with technology and engineering. Teachers are excited to discover ways to reach more students. Many physics, biology, art, and shop teachers now have their students engaged in these projects. In North Logan, the library is already opening its doors to all kinds of learning activities. Community members are coming to participate in arts, crafts, and computer classes for seniors. This segment of Did You Know That has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians. Located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. I'm Michelle Hickson with USU's Center for Women and Gender, inviting you to learn more about Utah projects and people that empower during Utah Public Radio's original series, Objectified More Than a Body. Tuesday afternoons at 4.30 during All Things Considered and Wednesday mornings at 7.41 during Morning Edition. Program listings and times found at upr.org. Heard only on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Angela Polly Hudson. Her uh, book, very interesting book, Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians. It's a recipient of the 2016 Evans Biography Award. And uh, in the mid-1840s, Warner McCary, an ex-slave from Mississippi, claimed a new identity for himself, traveling around the nation as a Choctaw performer, Oka Tubby. He soon married Lucy Stanton, a divorced white Mormon woman from New York who likewise claimed to be an Indian and used the name La Cille. Uh So, Angela Polly Hudson, uh, I guess strategically, if you're passing yourself as Indian... Um, then you can circumvent laws against miscegenation, right? Yes. That, that's one strategic thing. But, mm-hmm. of course, they there's a lot more going on here. Yes. So I, I argue in the book that on, on one level, they both ultimately adopt an Indian persona to protect themselves from scrutiny for what might have appeared to outside observers as an interracial marriage, a man of probably African descent, um, a woman who was apparently white. If they're traveling together in the antebellum United States, they're going to be subject to not only scrutiny, but perhaps persecution and maybe even prosecution. 
So one of the things that I try to demonstrate is that if they're both Native American traveling around, they might have raised some eyebrows, but it's not going to necessarily endanger their lives. And I think the importance of that sort of protection becomes even more paramount after they have a child together uh, because the, the stakes are so much higher then. But I also think, um, as I suggested to you before, I think Okatubby uses his Indianness as a way to make a living. It's, he's more marketable as a, mus- as a musician, as a stage performer, um, as an American Indian than he would have been as an African-American uh, musician. For Lucy Stanton, I think there's this fascination with American Indians. I think there's also almost what you would call ambition, an ambition to distinguish herself within the church at a time when I think the roles for women in the church were very much in flux and very much being debated. And um, and many people were sort of coming out from different quarters and saying that they were themselves having revelations and experiencing um, um, prophecies. And I think in part connecting herself to American Indians first through her husband and and through this this little sect that they develop, and then later by taking on that identity herself, I think that this is in some ways indicative of of a great deal of of drive on her part, and maybe even as I said, what we might call ambition. Hmm. So they did develop this sect mm-hmm. based on loosely on Mormon theology. I, I, you know, yes, uh, I guess that they they had some what sixty followers at the, the high point. So yeah, at first they start out in Cincinnati and. Um, there were already some LDS worshipers in Cincinnati. They are trying to, I think, sort of siphon off some of those people. And from what I can tell, and this is really coming from the newspapers that are reporting on it at the time, so it's a very limited perspective. But from what I can tell, they were trying to form their own little church. Um, and when you look at descriptions of what their uh, ceremonies were like or what their worship was like, it does very much seem to reflect Lucy Stanton's upbringing in, in the Mormon church. So they would, they were giving out blessings, patriarchal blessings and things like that, right? Um, there are a few little twists that make it kind of different. And, and of course, the key attraction apparently for the worshipers was that he was uh, an American Indian. And at and that time, she was also claiming to be one, too. So that seems to have been something that was drawing people in as well. Mm-hmm. As to what their actual doctrine was, if they had one, it's unclear. Mm-hmm. Now, they end up uh, later on, they end up in, um, is it um, Winter Quarters? They end up in Winter Quarters, yes. This is after their brief stint with this sect in Cincinnati. So when they go to Winter Quarters, of course, they're now back among the Mormons, the, the sort of larger body that includes Lucy Stanton's extended family. So she has to drop that Indian persona that she had briefly held in Cincinnati. She goes back to being Lucy Stanton. But now she's the wife of this man who is claiming to be a Lamanite prophet. And um, they are – he's performing as a musician for people in Winter Quarters – but he's also beginning to try and revive this little sect that they had in Cincinnati. And they get in trouble with the Quorum of the Twelve uh, for doing this and for leading people off into um, into this other little group. And the, there's there's a scene in the book that's, that's one of my favorites, and it's been addressed by some other historians in, in various ways. But there's a scene in the book where he, Warner McCary, William McCary, is brought before the Quorum of the Twelve with his wife, um, Brigham Young is there, and they sort of call him to answer for his activities, these sort of what they call schismatic activities of breaking off a group from the, the body of the church. And it goes 
horribly wrong, I think, from the perspective of the Quorum of the Twelve, because Okatubi, William McCary, treats it like a performance. He goes into trying to prove to them his Indianness. He goes so far as to strip naked in front of them and then put on his Indian costume. Um, he goes into some of his set pieces from the stage. He starts to tell jokes and do mimicry and throw his voice. And you can imagine, uh, at least I did when I was writing it, that the that the members of the quorum had no idea that this meeting, and they were calling him to sort of chasten him for his activities, was going to go this way. Hmm. He he's he, he's a fascinating character, and and I, I'm sure as a as a historian you kind of wanted to get into his head, but all we have is the record, right? And so. Right. As to whether how much of this does he really believe, how much is performance? It's one of the most difficult things for me when when I was researching it is I'd, I have no letters from either of them, with the exception of maybe four letters that I can't tell which one of them wrote. I think it was I think it was Lucy because I believe he remained illiterate for the duration of his life. I have four letters that that one of them wrote or someone helped them write to an Indian commissioner at one point, um, but nothing personal, right? No no diaries. No letters. I have three editions of their composite autobiography. But the purpose of the autobiography was to convince readers and audiences of their Indianness. So the autobiography is as much untrue as it is true. And with in the absence, you know, for historians, we always try to look to those personal writings as a way to reconstruct a person's decision making, you know, their motivations. Why did they feel the way that they did and why did they do what they did? And I had to try and reconstruct their lives really without any of that kind of material. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to get into the context of, of the mm-hmm. uh, where society was at the time, because mm-hmm. that's very important that you treat a lot of that in the book. Yes. Uh, so reading uh, from your book, um, you, you, you said uh, um, the book considers their lives, talking about these two people, as a way to explore the antebellum notions of identity that coalesced around ideas about American Indians. To do so, it engages many of the important concerns of the period, the socioeconomic roots of the religious awakening, the indeterminacy of race and gender as lived categories, the anxieties of physical and social mobility, and the importance of entertainment for the burgeoning uh, middle class. I wonder if we could start with anxieties of physical and social mobility. I was Mm -hmm. fascinated reading in your book that uh, there was an opening up, there was a greater possibility that you could reinvent yourself, but there were anxieties that went along with that. Absolutely. So in part, when I say the the physical mobility, this is an era when um, it's, it's before railroads become viable means of transportation, but more and more roads and turnpikes are being opened in the United States. Um, canal travel becomes uh, much more important, and steamboat travel becomes essential. This means that people can travel further and faster than they ever could before. So whereas it used to be people stayed more or less where they where they lived and you sort of knew more or less everybody around you, you couldn't pretend to be someone else because everyone already knew who you were. Now someone can hop on a steamboat and be in two days, you know, be 100 miles, 200 miles up the river where no one knows who they are and mm-hmm. they can completely reinvent themselves. So this is the same context in which Herman Melville writes about the confidence man, right? This idea of the confidence man, of people being able to masquerade and that theme of um, imposture and that's the, the the quote that I read earlier from the Buffalo Courier, that there's nothing so certain to succeed as imposture if boldly managed. You had to be confident in your imposture. That, on the one hand, fascinated people. There was a lot of writing about it. It appeared as a theme in the stage performances and plays. Um, but it also 
terrified people. And so that's where we get to the question of social mobility. Hmm. If people could travel around and reinvent themselves, then that meant that people didn't stay in their prescribed social station. Women could act more manly than they should, right? People of color could claim to be, could pass as white. Enslaved people might be able to um, pass themselves off as free. So that greater physical mobility leads to this sort of social flexibility that threatens the very categories that hold the the hierarchies in the United States. Um, Gender hierarchies, racial hierarchies, economic and social hierarchies are all called into question by people's ability to reinvent themselves. Mm. I can see you you take these anxieties and you put them in the racial realm. That's that's the highest, I guess, the anxieties probably would get. Yeah, well, this is the era in which, you know, in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law is passed. And while on its surface that's about the recovery of of, um, property in the form of enslaved people, it also hinges on what I call in the book racial acuity, a theory of racial acuity. So um, slaveholders and slaveholding interests in the South are essentially in lobbying for this law and insisting on its enforcement, even in the free states. They're essentially insisting on their superior ability to identify people of color by looking at them and to then – reassert that the proper place for those people of color is as slaves, right? So um, so it has real implications in the, in the laws of this era. It has real implications in terms of people's lives. And so it's, so it's not just a sort of theory of the flexibility and the, and the way that people felt this social anxiety, but it's being manifested in laws and policies that, mm-hmm. that affect people on a daily basis. And science. Yes. You have racism, uh, thriving in in science. So this is the same era in which we see historians record the emergence of what we call scientific racism. So and this there are vestiges of this still with us today and scientific racism in many ways becomes the sort of the foundation on which a little bit later the eugenics movement is built, okay, and the idea of a, a pure Anglo-Saxon race and that sort of thing. But scientific racism was very much about looking, it was very much about the body. And that there were distinct races that were immutable. They couldn't change. You were, you were a certain race and you always would be. And um, so with this came a lot of sort of pseudoscientific procedures, uh, measuring the brain or measuring the, the size of the, the head and the brain cavity, um, looking at the texture of hair, looking at the color of the skin and the, and the size and shape of facial features. And we see this apparent in the way in which people are writing about Okatubi, particularly in, in just after 1851 when he starts to be exposed. Newspapers start to say things like, well, we kind of knew he wasn't an Indian because of his nose. Or once we took another look at his hair, then we realized it wasn't the straight, silky hair of the Indian that we expected, which is that kind of statement is making claims both about what an African descended person is and looks like, but also what an American Indian person is or isn't. You talk about in the book how over time um, Americans, U.S. perception of Indians changed. used to be they're different. They're different socially. They're different mm-hmm. civilization. We can civilize them. And then it became they're a different race. Yes. So this is a, a transition that happens um, more or less from Jefferson to Jackson, <laughs> if you will. So, um, you know, the, the American Enlightenment thinkers of the founding era, um, although I think they believed in the inferiority of Native peoples, 
they nevertheless committed themselves to the possibility that they could be civilized, that with the programs of the federal government, with Christianization, with education, they could be made to progress. And that was a real foundational idea within the Enlightenment, is that one could could progress, could learn, right? Um, that's really looking at American Indians as being different on a cultural or social level. Right? Culture is learned. It can be unlearned, or you can learn a new one. By the time we get to the, the 1820s, especially the late 1820s, the idea has really shifted around American Indians to the, to the concept that they, are, that they are savages. They will always be savages, and no amount of education, no amount of Christianization will ever allow them to improve to the level of white men. And this is apparent in the language around the Indian Removal Act, which is passed in 1830, and it's really sort of the crowning achievement of Jackson's administration. It's the kind of it's the thing in some ways that he campaigned on um, for his election. And you know he he had fought shoulder to shoulder with Cherokee soldiers not you know 15 years before in in the War of 1812 and in the Creek War. And yet in the language around the passage of the Indian Removal Bill, he distills this idea of their permanent inferiority, saying they are stuck in a state of savagery. So there's this shift that's happened in the first third of the 19th century from Indians as culturally different to racially different. And you mentioned before, as there are fewer and fewer Indians around in the East, they've been removed. Um, there's a nostalgia, right? There's mm-hmm. a there's a, a hunger for interaction with or learning about or or having Indians perform for you this this disappearing people. And that this is what the Okatabi and La Seal are tapping into. Absolutely. It? They capitalize on this fascination. I mean, the thing that they're really good at is they know their audience. You know, they know what sells. And um, one of the striking things that I try to, to sort of keep um, my readers aware of is that in the same time period when Okatabi and La Seal and other performers are selling this sort of uh, imperialist, nostalgic Indian figure on the stage, they're there are Native people who are also traveling around. A lot of times they're activists, they're temperance activists, for example, or they're trying to raise money for educational um, opportunities in their nations, most, many of which have now been removed west of the Mississippi River. If they don't appear, if those Native people don't appear on stage with all the buckskin and the beads and all the earrings and that sort of thing, most audiences in the East didn't accept them as American Indian. And there, so there's this kind of disconnect, right? American Indians are somehow not able to to, they're not allowed to progress and be modern. They've got to be sort of stuck in this past. And that past is precisely what Okatubby and La Seal are selling to their audiences. And there are some American Indians who tapped into this for themselves, right? Yes, absolutely. So there are some who become kind of what one scholar calls literary entrepreneurs. You know, they're writing um, people like George Copway. Um, and there are others who who don't resist when their audiences say, we want to see you in your traditional dress. We want to see you in your in your costume, right? Um, because they know that this is the key to their success, uh, whether it's their, their financial success as performers or a, in a lot of cases, they're raising money for various kinds of causes. Mm-hmm. And that necessity of playing Indian, if you will, um, Native people themselves don't escape that, right? Mm-hmm. Their authenticity is questioned if they don't do it too. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I that I try to emphasize in the book is that there's been a tendency among literary scholars to look at particularly Okatubby and what he does in adopting this Indian persona as um, subversive, that there's this emancipatory potential to it because he is escaping the stigma of blackness by taking on this Indianness. But what I try to emphasize is that 
that while that may be true, and while for Lucy Stanton, she may have escaped what she believed were the strictures of Mormon womanhood by taking on an Indian persona, what they're also doing in the process is reinscribing a very narrow idea of what it means to be an American Indian. And that has a real impact on the lives of indigenous people in this era. Hmm. Interesting. So they're, they're using it, they're subverting it in a way, but they're also locked into. They're also producing it yeah. and reproducing mm-hmm. it, right? Yeah. So, that, so that the subversive potential of it is really compromised mm-hmm. by the fact that they themselves are contributing to this, this very, what becomes a stereotypical vision of Native people. Mm-hmm. It's kind of hard to, sometimes to see back past our own time mm-hmm. because we're so familiar in today's world um, with reinventing yourself. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's become a very American thing. You just reinvent yourself, in fact, in front of people, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd be the equivalent of in your own town back in the 19th century reinventing yourself, which wasn't possible then. And I, I guess, I don't know, we've worked through those anxieties or we've learned to live with them. At that time, there's a lot of anxiousness about this. Well, and I think even if we think about it in our own time, I think there are limits to what people will accept. So, for example, I was asked to write a, a blog post for my publisher the, that connected um, the book to some more recent events. And I compared La Cille to Rachel Dolezal. So you may recall she was a, she's an activist in the Northwest. Oh, that's right. Right, yes. who mm-hmm. um, claims to be African-American, was the, the president or a leader in one of the local NAACP chapters, was a lecturer in African-American studies at a local university, and was then subsequently sort of outed by her family and some other people's uh, some other people in the area as being white, as being not African American. And I think that was one of those instances where you see people can reinvent themselves, but only so far. Mm-hmm. There are limits to it. Mm-hmm. And um, for for Okatubby, the limit was was his blackness. Um, people were willing, I think, much more willing to allow La Seal to reinvent herself as an American Indian. Um, but they weren't allowing him to reinvent himself as as anything other than African American, mm. right? So I, I do think that there, um, there's there was some flexibility then. There's a great deal more now, but when you reach the limit of people's tolerance for that reinvention, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's take another break. When we come back, more with Angela Poli Hudson, her fascinating new book, "Real Native Genius: How an Ex-Slave and a White Borman Became Famous Indians." the recipient of a 2016 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. UPR radio listeners make smart investment choices. They invest their time, their passion, their money, and they support Utah Public Radio. Make an investment in your patrons. Become a UPR sponsor. Call 435-797-3141 for more information. Alabama went hard for Donald Trump. Yes, because he's a Republican and Alabama is as red a state as they get, but also because change. Again, it's not going, it's not changing unless we get people in there who say we've got to make a difference for everybody else. I'm Kai Rizdahl. How and why one red state got redder next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 630 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Angela Polly Hudson. The book is Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians. It's a recipient of a 2016 Evans Biography Award. Um, so I wonder if you could take me inside a 
performance, typical performance that uh, you, you would go, you're, you're, I guess you're a religious congregation or maybe a temperance group or in a concert hall at a town, mm-hmm. uh, Okatubby and La Seal show up, what would, what would you experience? Well, it would depend very much on where you were because they were masters at uh, meeting their audience's desires and, and expectations. So, for example, before they retired from the stage, they performed in Toronto. And in Toronto at that time, there was a significant population of um, immigrants from Scotland and Ireland. So their entire, they shaped their entire show around a, a repertoire of music that included Scottish ballads and um, even had their, their young son up on stage um, in his Indian garb. So all three of them would have shown up in costume, buckskin, fringe, beads. Okatubi was said to have worn a nose ring. All sorts of uh, what people described as gaudy baubles um, adorning all of them. He was also going to, you would expect to see him with something covering his head. So we were just talking earlier about the, the scientific racism and that lens of looking at, the, at his hair. So he was always known to wear a wig or some other kind of turban or head covering. So he would have been wearing that. But they tailored their repertoire. They tailored the nature of the actual performance to what they thought the audience wanted. So even though he's this virtuosic, celebrated Choctaw flutist, he didn't get up on stage in Toronto and perform any sort of Indian-derived or Choctaw-inspired music. He got up there and played My Bonnie Lass mm. and things that the Scottish immigrants in, Toronto, in the working class you know, Toronto um, environment would have, would have recognized and would have wanted to hear. Mm. Now, the audience going to this, would they have... Would it even have been a concern to them that this is authentic? In today's world, that would be front and center, wouldn't it? Yeah. And, and people would boo and hiss, I guess, if they didn't feel it was authentic. And Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's always the possibility that people going to his performances were were in on it, where that they had an awareness that he was not exactly who he said he was. Whether they had that same awareness about La Seal, I'm not so sure. I think that they were more willing to accept her claims than they were his but that might have been part of what the attraction was, the sort of uh, cognitive dissonance of this pair, both claiming to be American Indians, undoubtedly talented performers, but not precisely coming from the backgrounds that they said they did. Mm-hmm. You have to recall, too, that this was the high point of blackface minstrelsy as a form of entertainment in the United States. So many of the same audiences that may have gone to see Okatubby were probably also patronizing those kinds of performances. And, and in those cases, it was clear that the people performing on stage were not of African descent. They were white men who had blacked their faces with burnt cork. And yet that was that was hilarious. That was wonderful entertainment for the people of the era. Um, so, so I think that that both could have been true. I think there could have been people who who really believed in the authenticity of what they were seeing, and there could have been others that the the very inauthenticity of it was precisely why they paid the admission price. Mm. So, uh, I want to follow up with that. that. I'm curious about that. What was going on with the audience in those minstrel shows? Blackface, of course, it's roundly condemned, rightly so today. Um, so that they were finding it funny? Is that what they were, they were getting some humor out of this? What, what was going on there? Yeah, so those shows tended to be um, bawdy. You know, the, the level of humor involved was, was really kind of targeting the, the laboring classes and, um, and maybe and in some cases the sort of emergent middle class. And, um, you know, historians and, and scholars who have addressed the development of blackface minstrelsy and its, and its popularity argue that it was 
a way and an expression of trying to um, contain blackness, to define blackness in a way that that made it acceptable to people, particularly um, in the urban north where slavery was no longer a real salient factor. But there was still a great deal of anxiety and unrest about, well, what do we do with these free blacks in our midst? So the minstrel shows tended to um, focus on settings, imagined settings of the plantation south. So this was an attempt to kind of say, well, um, this is their proper place, right? But it also would make fun of um, African-Americans in various ways, would make fun of of, um, their their gender identities, would make fun of their intelligence, um, all according to scholars who have studied that particular form of entertainment as a way of sort of defining blackness so that it was not threatening to the largely urban um, white laboring class audience. Mm. I wonder if we could uh, bring this forward to the the, the prologue. You mm-hmm. you cite this case. Um, Okatabi was hauled into court for I guess for bigamy. Was yes, it? he married. I can't remember her name. He he, he yeah. married uh, Sarah Marlett. Sarah Marlett. Mm-hmm. He already had a wife. Yes, this was found out. Although it wasn't focused on that she's white, she was still she's described as a quote unquote a squaw and right. and, and seen a sympathetic fa- figure. I want to start with this. Um, Sarah Marlett was described as being caught up in the the romantic notion mm-hmm. of what an Indian is, and so that's one of the factors here. Well, I guess she meets this man and yeah fa- falls for him. I guess, and in a lot of ways, Sarah Marlett, the way she's described in the papers, is kind of how I imagine La Ciel, uh as a younger woman. You know, sort of being fascinated by, maybe even seduced by, the idea of the Indian. Um, as to why Okatubi marries her, it's unclear. And I, I put forward a couple of different possibilities. Could this, been, could this have been an expression of plural marriage even after they had left the Mormon fold? Possibly. Um, was it just dalliance and that he was hoping he wouldn't get caught? Maybe. Was it a, an opportunity perhaps to access someone else's money? That's possible as well. Mm. Um, but, but Sarah Marlett, at least in the way the papers write about it, is is said to have been um, afflicted with monomania for marriage, and this was basically a way of saying that she was um, she was guilty of of being a woman. I mean, many women had been were committed to insane asylums for hysteria in this era, and in fact, she had only recently been released from the Utica Insane Asylum in New York when right before she marries Okatubby. Um But saying that she was obsessed with the idea of marriage doesn't tell us a whole lot because that those were accusations that were lofted against lots of women for for existing outside the bounds of what was considered to be true womanhood or appropriate womanhood at the time. It's interesting. You um, you quote newspaper stories. Mm-hmm. Very interesting to compare and contrast, as you do in the book, southern papers versus the northern papers. Yeah, and this becomes very important in, in Okatubi's later career because he was, at least for a period from, from about mid-1847 to late-1849, he and his wife were the talk of the town in the eastern um, press. They were even maybe a household name because of their performances from Baltimore to, to Boston. Um, and in the northern papers, they're typically written about in very glowing terms. Now, uh, occasionally it's clear that some agent who is representing them is actually inserting the stories into the paper to convince people to come to their shows. They never traveled and performed together in the South, so far as I can tell. And so you don't have those kind of glowing um, um, endorsements that you have in the northern papers. But even when people were just writing about, oh, I attended his show, it was terrific, you can't miss this guy, he's terrific, you know, he's wonderful, 
Um, you didn't see that kind of writing in the South. When they begin to, uh, when when word of his fame begins to trickle back to the to the South and to the and to the West, places like Kentucky, people recognize him. He had never been really good at laying low. You know, even when he was before he assumed his Indian persona, he was outperforming. He was performing on the street. He was he was marching with militias uh, as their fifer. He was performing in in, um, in the, on the stage and. So the Southern papers, the Southern readers and editors, they recognized descriptions of his performances, and they began to write about, this is not the fellow you think he is. And they even began to poke fun at um, the Northern papers and the Northern audiences for being so dim-witted that they couldn't tell an, um, an Indian from an African-American. Mm-hmm. Even the Choctaws get in on this. Fascinating find that I had relatively late in my research was a little blurb, a little editorial in a Choctaw newspaper from Indian Territory, also making fun of the dim-witted Yankees for um, accepting that this man was a Choctaw. And they said, you know, if he were here, we would be sure to recognize him for what he really is. Mm. Maybe they're a little more concerned about it, right? Because you said some of the audiences in the North maybe went in Knowing this is a show and just, yeah. en- just enjoying it. Well, that question of imposture, particularly in the context of, you know, we're still in the era of slavery, that was very um, – the, the notion that someone could be passing as not black or passing as free when they weren't, even though he, in his case he, he was, that was intensely threatening to the southern slaveholding, um, you know, um, aristocracy, if you will. And there were Choctaws who were also slave owners. You know, the ones who were likely to be reading the news, the Choctaw newspaper in Indian Territory were probably the elite slaveholding Choctaws as well. So their uh, their perspective on this situation was probably not all that different than a lot of their white southern counterparts who were looking at this. And on the one hand, they were sort of amused by it. But there was this undercurrent of of danger or threat. If someone could get over on people this easily. Um, then, then clearly those people outside the South weren't seeing things for what they were. Mm. Tell me about the title, Real Native Genius. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Yes, there is. Um, so Real Native Genius was a phrase that was used in one newspaper account to describe Okatubby um, in relationship to his musical abilities. So they described him as, as um, being a person of real native genius. Don't miss this performance. And what they meant by that and what would have been recognized by their audience is that this is a person who is um, not a trained musician, right, more or less self-taught. And this idea of native genius both meant um, that it was a person who uh, had not had the benefit of, of formal training in music or in art or in letters, that sort of thing. But it also had the dual meaning that this was someone who was um, peculiar to, special to America. This was at a time in which the United States in art and letters is really trying to distinguish itself in its own special identity apart from that of Britain um, and and uh, other countries in Europe. So there was a lot of emphasis on trying to develop a, a uniquely American style of music, of writing, um, of art. So that term native genius both works to signal his lack of training and but his great talent despite his lack of training, but also that he is um, he's something that's a uniquely American product. Hmm. And the real part was in the original quote, and I felt like I had to keep it because the, one of the questions this book raises, I think, is, is anything real? <laughs> um, what's real about identity? And a question people often ask me is, well, was he really Choctaw? 
right? Mm. And I always give a very frustrating answer to that, which is you can't know. Mm. You can never know. And what does that even mean to be really Choctaw? Does it mean he has Choctaw, he had Choctaw ancestors? It's entirely possible, given the multicultural environment in which he was born. That's entirely possible. It's also totally unknowable. But does that, is that what it means to be Choctaw, to, be, to have biological ancestors who were Choctaw? For most Choctaw people today, they would say to be Choctaw is to be raised in that culture. And especially since it was, it was historically a matrilineal society, it didn't matter whether he had a Choctaw father or not. What he needed was a Choctaw mother. So this idea of really questioning what is real, um, what is native, and what is genius mm. is part of why I, I insisted on that. I had to, had to fight for it a little mm. bit, but mm-hmm. I insisted on that in the title. Well, and then the subtitle gets you into the kind of the story, right? Um, I, we just have a few minutes left. Um, I want to move the history forward. It's fascinating because people in Utah be interested. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Lucy Stanton, who became La Seal, later in life went back to Lucy Stanton. I can't remember where last husband's name was, mm-hmm. uh, she's buried in Springville. She is, and I have visited her grave. It's in the shadow of the Wasatch Mountains. Beautiful, beautiful place. She's buried next to the three children from her first marriage. She turns up in Springville in 1869. I like to believe she took the Transcontinental Railroad. I think that's very unlikely, but I like to believe it anyway. She turns up in Utah after having been released from seven years of hard labor in Sing Sing Prison in mm. New York. She had been. She got in trouble with for uh, conducting patent medicine, I guess. Was, she uh, well, she was she was indicted and and um, convicted for manslaughter. One of her patients died, um, and the uh, story around the investigation was that she was not only providing patent medical care and operating as as what she called and, and others called an Indian doctress, but she was providing abortions. Mm-hmm. Abortions were illegal um, in New York and many other places by this time. But she was actually convicted for the death of the patient in this botched abortion. And so she's she, when she gets out of prison in New York, she travels out to Utah. By this time, Okatubby has disappeared from the scene. We don't know what happens to him. But she reunites with her family in Utah. She marries the brother of her first husband. Hmm. So she had been in her early life Lucy Stanton Bassett. She became Lucy Stanton Bassett McCary or Lucy Stanton Bassett Tubby, if you will. <laughs> And then in her later life, she again becomes Lucy Stanton Bassett, and the, and the Bassett name is, is, in fact, on her headstone. So at some point, she stops performing Indianness, right? She stops becoming Indian. Yeah. Um, I don't know whether that's around the time of her trial or, or whatever it is, but then certainly by the time she gets back to Utah, she's Lucy yeah. Stanton again. There's no evidence that during her trial or her incarceration, anyone questioned her Indian identity. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, the prison records for that era um, were destroyed. But even during the trial and, um, and, the, and the, the sentencing, she was still the Indian doctor's Madame Lucille. So what seems clear to me is that she she couldn't maintain her Indian persona when she was with the Mormons. She was just too known. I mean, she was with her own family members. The The question remains, what did they know about that, that interim? When she comes to Utah in 1869, she had not seen her three children for 19 years. Wow. She had said goodbye to them in 1850 to go off on this traveling road show and, and didn't see them again, you know, for almost two decades. So I always wondered... What did they know about her exciting life during that period? Did mm. they know anything? Did they know about, you know, this this fellow that she ran off with? And um, and what did they make of that? She had one child, was it, or more with Okatubby? She has one, mm. and he disappears from the records as well. This was something that was excruciating for me as a historian to not be able to find out the answer. 
the last record I have of the child Mashola, and they take this, they do this really fascinating thing. They have this child together, and they name him Mashola, so that his name is Mashola Tubby. And that is the name of the Choctaw chief that Okatubby claims he's the long-lost son of. So he actually creates a kin connection to a Mashola Tubby by naming his son that. Um, but he, the last record I have of him is um, as a three-year-old on stage with them in Toronto. And after that, he disappears. I mm. suspect he may have died. Um, as a child, there were you know it was a great deal of um, of diseases in the in the cities of the time, and it's, it's it's entirely possible that he did. When she's arrested in Buffalo in 1862, there's no mention of a child living with her. Mm. When she got back to Utah, is, is there any record she ever talked about her those years away? Um, I I didn't find any. I mean, I I didn't go deeply into the records of um, of the Stanton family. Um, and it's possible that she communicated some of that information to her daughters um, or her son. Well, her, one of her daughters and her son, uh, older son, passed away shortly after they were all reunited in Utah. But her other daughter, Samira, was married to the mayor of Springville and, you know, went on to have a, a five or six children of her own. And, and, you know, presumably their descendants are, are out there. Um, I didn't. I didn't look very hard for those records, to be quite honest with you. What, one of the fascinating things that I did find, however, about their life in Springville, was that Samira and her husband had adopted a Paiute boy named Frank, and I just found that fascinating because mm. here at the end of Lucy's life, she's living in Springville, and you know, more or less in the embrace of her family she'd been d- detached from for so long, and there's this Paiute boy who um, was probably adopted by the, the Wood family, Samira's husband, um, to save him from being enslaved. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, we're at the end here. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this fascinating history and what it means? I would, I would like to say that I, uh, this book really came about through a lot of coincidences and a lot of very random occurrences where people would reach out to me with information, people I'd never met before, and the people that I met when I was out here in Utah doing research were some of the most kind and generous um, people, scholars and genealogists that I've ever met. And really without their assistance, without their help, I don't think I could have been able to accomplish this. Hmm. Uh, the book is out uh, now from University of North Carolina Press, Real Native Genius, How an Ex-Slave and a White Mormon Became Famous Indians. And it's the recipient of a 2016 Evans Biography Award from the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. The author, who has joined us, is Angela Poli hudson who is Associate Professor of History at Texas A&M University. Thank you so much. Thank you.